0: Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right under the seat in front of you. And if you're not familiar with your Bible and you're like, I don't know where James is, that's okay. There's a table of contents in the beginning open to the beginning of your Bible, just look, James is one of the last books of the Bible. It's okay to not be familiar with the Bible right now. It's not if you're just like, well, I don't ever care. In a year, if you continue to read, you'll know where James is. So it's okay. So if you're like, oh, I'm nervous, I don't, we'll give you time. So don't worry about it. There's no pressure here. Um, So James chapter four, we've been working our way through this little epistle where James is identifying what authentic faith looks like to this group of Christians he's writing to. And as we came to chapter four, I'll be honest, I was thinking this this morning, I just I'm gonna skip this text. it's It's probably not real relevant for us. I mean it's just not. I mean, most of us are going to be bored this morning. It's because it only will affect about a real small percentage of you because it's it's on conflict. I mean, and most of us we just don't have any, right? I mean, the kids don't, the kids are perfect kids, and, and you never have an argument with your spouse, and everything that works is always great. So, if you want, we can just jump down to the end of the chapter and, uh, and we'll deal with that, right? No, the reality is this ever since Genesis 3, since Adam sold Eve out and he ended up sleeping on the lawn, there's been conflict, all right? People get hurt feelings, people are misunderstood, people disappoint. People get mad, people get bitter. Um, and it, it happens. And and really, there's only two options when it happens. We can handle it in a godly way, or we can handle it in a worldly way. But those are our options. Notice there's not a third option of avoiding it. If you say, My goal is to avoid conflict, then you will never have relationships. Ever. Or not deep ones. And even if you didn't, if you if you were Tom Hanks on an island as a castaway, even then you're still gonna kick Wilson the, the volleyball at least once, all right? So you're, even if you're living alone, you're gonna have conflict with yourself or the volleyball, okay? So it's, it's going to happen. Even the perfect sinless son of God in his life had conflict. His, his family, okay, there was issues with them. They, they were dealing with him. It wasn't on him, it was on them, but he had conflict. The Pharisees, the disciples, Satan, he, he constantly was facing others and he was perfectly sinless, So if the sinless Son of God could not avoid it, then we can't. So our goal is, how do we handle it biblically? How do we handle conflict in a godly way? That is what the text is about. And that's why, even though it's a challenging text in some ways, like I'm not a conflict guy. You can ask my wife, I don't like conflict. I I don't. But there is a way to handle it that honors God. And that's why I, I am excited about this text, because I think it's relevant. It's where we're at. And I think this will make a big difference in our lives as we exalt Jesus, and as we make him known, and as, as we're light, because the way we handle these things will be huge, all right? And so James knows a little bit about conflict. As the head of the church in Jerusalem, he, he sees conflict, all right? He knows a lot. He was the, co- the, the cause of conflict in Jesus' life at one point when he was doubting him, and when he was really saying, he's a, he's a, he's a wacko. But then he, when he's the head of the church, he saw conflict on all sides. And, and really, the church it's nothing new in the church. Every, do you realize almost every letter of the New Testament is written in response to some sort of conflict? I mean, Corinth, they're suing one another. In Galatians, they're biting and devouring one another. In Ephesus, there's racism. Philemon is a letter that's written to a guy so that he will forgive his runaway slave. In Titus, there's all sorts of relational chaos, right? So, so this is nothing new, right? In Philippi, there's these two ladies. He says, I wish y'all would just get along. All right, so this is nothing new. So we want to learn to handle it in, in a biblical manner, and in a godly way. And what James is going to do is he's going to tell us. And, and here's where we're going to go. He's going he's to hit the bad news first, and we're going to work through the bad news, and we're going to work through it quickly, We got to deal with it, but we're going to deal quickly because we want to get to the solution. But he's going to identify what's the problem here. What's the problem? And then better yet, here's the solution. So let me read the entirety of the text and then we'll get into it. Verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell with us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? He begins like he has been in the last couple of weeks. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? Two different words for really the same thing. What's the problem is what he's saying. It's the mom who yells upstairs, what's the problem up there? Why can't y'all get along? Right? What causes the quarrels and the fights among you? And ask yourself the question, what, what, the, the, the most conflict in your life, whatever that relationship is boss brother aunt what's the cause? be honest most of you are like i see some of you're like looking tim are you? <laughs> is this right here you look at the problem right It's this guy right here that i live with or this my, my roommate the problem it's my boss it's no one understands me that's the problem no one gets it that's the problem right? You wouldn't believe what my boss is like. That's the problem. And, and those, those may be a reality, and those may be true, but what does he say? He says, what's the problem? He's like, no, no don't answer. I'm going to tell you. Is it not this? And the implied thing is this. Yes, it is this. It's your passions at war within you. So don't look out there. It's a within you problem. It is a heart problem. It's your passions. That's what he says. He says that's causing the strife. And the word for passions is this Greek word hedone. We get our English word hedonism from it, right? And it's, it's always used in a negative way in the scripture. It's Jesus when the, when the thorns choke out the spiritual life in the parable of the sower. It's the passions. It's that, that desire to, to be fulfilled. It's just that desire to get and to be, be the highest goal is, is living for you. The highest goal is, is personal gratification. That's hedonism. He says, that is the source of, of your problem. Is, is when you just are living for you. That's the problem. And it's all about you. And really, if you, you could circle, I have him in my Bible. Every time he uses the word you in the la- in this paragraph, it's like you do this, you do this, you, it's you, 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 it's all about you, you, want the source, it's all about you, When you, are living for your pleasure, that's the source of your conflict. Now, let me just say this, because there's a brand of Christianity out there, and I don't, it's not real Christianity, but it's a brand that says, well, if you're going to be a real Christian, you have to be miserable. And so you should suffer and be miserable and always be grumpy, and that's true holiness. All right? What the Apostle Paul would say is that is man-made religion that has the appearance of wisdom, but it's really foolishness. There are times when we struggle and suffer, but if God is good and we've looked in chapter one and he gives good things, that he has given good things to enjoy. God has given us things to delight in, right? He's given us good things to enjoy. He gives us good music to enjoy. He gives us friends to hang out with and laugh and enjoy. He created the concept of rest, so sleeping in once in a while is a good thing. Going on a vacation is a good thing. He gives good things. He gives jobs and work, which is a good thing, right? These are good. He's made some of you creative so you can create art or you can appreciate art, and your creativity is rooted in here. It is a good thing. He gives good food. Gives good steaks, right? He gives good coffee. For some of you, he gives a good glass of wine to enjoy, right? He gives good things to delight in. To, to exercise. He's given you a body to go on a good run on the beach or to go play a great game of baseball, right? Or football. Not I said not soccer earlier. Go, a good <laughs> baseball, right? But he, he gives these things to enjoy. He gives sex. The kids are out of here, so I'll say it. He gives sex to enjoy in the context of marriage. It is a good thing, So don't come in here all grumpy. I have to be miserable because God wants me to be miserable. Now, that said, where pleasures comes in and where hedonism comes in, when the goal to, to just love yourself is the highest goal, when those things become the greatest thing, that is when there is a problem. That is when it all falls apart. That's when it becomes unraveled. When that stuff becomes the greatest thing. And instead of enjoying God in those things, you enjoy those things over God. That is where it becomes an issue. That is hedonism. And he says, when you don't get it, you get mad, right? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. And he's not talking about, you know, Mrs. McGillicuddy in the pantry with the lead pipe murder. He's talking about what Jesus says in Matthew 5. If you're angry in your heart, you have murdered your brother. And so you talk smack or you say, this is not fair. or You, you assassinate their character. You covet and you can't get, so you fight and quarrel. And it's rooted where? In me. It's rooted in me. Ultimately, it's rooted. You know what the problem is when you when you just kind of get down to the core issue. The problem is pride. It's, it's ultimately it's pride. It's I I am the most important. And you can you can narrow down every quarrel, every fight, ultimately and every struggle in any end to to pride. And so you're driving down the road. Someone cuts in front of you. You got to slam on brakes. Ah. You are mad. Why? Because I should be in front of them. I should be in front of them. It's not fair. That, because you're inconvenienced, you slam on break. Jealousy, I should have what they have. It would be more appropriate for my life to have that job, to have that promotion, to have that ministry, to have that spouse. It's more important. It's for me. Deceit. I want to look my, make myself look better, so I'll lie, I'll exaggerate, I'll tell half-truths, I'll lie about them to bring them down so I go up. Adultery. Most people think adultery is about physical. It's not, it's about more, more often than not, it's about this person makes me feel better than this person. My husband doesn't say nice things to me, this guy does. This woman, she, 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 she's kind to me and, and she's not, it's about me. It's ultimately an emotional connection, it's not as, as physical. Or, or betrayal, it's not worth it to me to be faithful to this, this deal, it costs too much, it's about me. All, ultimately these things rooted in, in that, it's in pride. And not only does it affect that, it affects our prayer life, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. When you're all about you, you cease to talk to God. You cease to ask God for things. You stop asking. You stop trying to go get it on your own, and you stop asking. Or, he says, you ask for silly things. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasure. Lord, I love you. I need to I need trade in my husband. All right, I need a newer model. All right, this one's broken. Or right, I want to win the lottery. Lord, help us to win the Powerball. I'll tithe, and we'll build a building for the church, and I'll send money to Africa. And we'll do it, Lord. Just give me the lottery, please. And thankfully, God typically does not answer prayers that will reinforce our pride for our own good, right? Um, right? Because God cares enough. But look what he says in verse four. And this is strong. And I'm not going to neuter the text. I'm just going to read it, and you listen to what he says. He says, you adulterous people. Well, that's strong from James. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he's not talking about not loving the world and not enjoying the people of the world, not trying to reach the world. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying when your worldview is the same as theirs, when your highest goal is the same as theirs, when you have bought into this versus that, that is spiritual adultery and everything that goes with it. You're playing the harlot with the world. You're prostituting yourself to the world. It's a, it's a strong statement. It's, he's, he's pulling his Old Testament prophet card out. This is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these kids are, are saying to the nation of Israel when they, when they leave their faithfulness to God. And notice what he says next. And, and the ESV gets it right. And some of your more modern or summary translations, they miss it a little bit because they don't get the literalness. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy. It's not that God push, makes you an enemy. You are literally putting yourself against God. You're saying, I'm choosing teams, and I'm choosing against. It's not not a wise choice. It's not that God has made you an enemy. You have made yourself an enemy, right, because of pride. This is why the Proverbs says there's six things the Lord hates, yet seven are an abomination. The first one, pride. This is the original sin of Satan, pride. Gets him cast out of heaven. And, and, And so I think we really need to be super honest with ourselves and we see conflict at the work and conflict with the brother and conflict with this and conflict in church and ministry and on my team just ask is it me is there is there a pride issue here's a little test all right take out your take out your bulletin and your pens a little test for you some of you're like don't have a number two pencil don't need one yes or no questions here we go question number one are you thinking about someone else that needs to hear this sermon right now yes or no Number two, do you think that you are better than other people? Maybe social class, maybe um, they do this form of school and we do this, or they go to this church and we go to this, or are you thinking you're better than other people? Yes or no? Number three, you believe that you are incapable of certain sins. I would never do that. Number four, I am harder on other people than I am myself. Yes or no? Number five, I think about myself a lot, how I fit in, how people think of me. In fact, I'm having such a hard time thinking about myself, I'm not taking this quiz right now. (laughs) Number six, I'm resisting taking this quiz right now or I'm refusing to participate, yes or no? All right, now if you answered yes to four to six questions, you have a pride problem. And if you answered yes to two to three questions, you have a a pride problem. And if you answered yes to zero to one of these questions, you have a a ginormous pride problem. (laughs) Because the reality is this. Here's the reality, we love ourselves. We do, and that's okay, because Jesus says, he assumes that you love yourself, right? He says what? Love your neighbor as what? yourself. So he assumes you love yourself. So we, we understand that. So, what, so we all acknowledge that. So what's the solution then? Because that's the, if that's the problem that often it's, it's because I want this or I misunderstood or I want. So what's the solution? Because that's what we want. That's what I want. And it may not get us out of conflict, but it certainly will help us to act like Christ in conflict. So let's see what James says, because this is the solution. If the problem is pride, what's the solution? Here's what James says next. Do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, this is one of the most difficult verses in all the New Testament to translate. In fact, some of your translations are all over the place. But just let me save you gobbledygooks of exegetical information. I think if you have the King James Version, New King James, ESV or the NASB, they get it right. I think that that's the better idea all right, it's just after reading the commentaries and seeing where they've gone. That said, there's a couple exegetical issues. Number one, where it says, do you suppose it says no purpose that the scripture says? The problem, one, first problem is this. Where does the scripture say this? Because there's no verse in the, all, the entire Old Testament that actually quotes what he, just, he says here. Which usually it says the scripture says this and it quotes a psalm, but there's no one verse. And so what most scholars believe, and I would agree, is that he's not quoting exactly one verse, but he's summarizing the whole of the teaching of what the Old Testament teaches or right, places. For instance, if I say, Jesus loves you, we'd say that is absolutely true. There's no one verse that says Jesus loves you. No, there's a verse that says God says loves the world and all these other things, but I'm summarizing the teaching of what the Bible says by saying the scripture says Jesus loves you, and that is true. And that's probably what James is doing here. He says, the scripture says this, And then he says this, that that he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now the second hard thing is this, is spirit supposed to be capitalized or uncapitalized? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it your spirit of man, the heart of man, the desires of man? Actually, either way there, it doesn't ultimately matter because he's saying the same thing. And here's what it is. He says, the scripture teaches this, y'all, that God jealously yearns, longs for, desires you whether it's the holy spirit that he's put in you or it's the heart of man to love him and have affection for him whatever either one god desires you to desire him and in fact it says he yearns and this is one of those truths if you really step back and i know this is going to be a little bit theological for some of you but if you will grasp this it is huge think about this now that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for eternity past, were in complete, joyful fellowship and love and enjoying of one another. There was never loneliness. There was never, wow, this is just us. It's, it's kind of boring. None of that that he was complete and satisfied and joyful and being worshiped and never missing anything. He was never lonely thinking, well, what if we did this and what if we did this? It was complete satisfaction and and joyfulness. And despite the fact that that they fellowship with one another and love one another, he still longs for something else. He longs for you that God who needs nothing and ultimately is is completely satisfied, longs for, yearns for you. And don't don't see that as you, plural, you know, everybody, that this, this complete and perfect and holy and awesome, loving God desires intimacy with Bill Fowler. John Smith, that he longs for you. That what he has done, and he longs for you so much, he loves you so much, that this perfect fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, was broken at one point because he, he sends his son, and he becomes a man, and he crushes his own son, becoming the object of your sin and his wrath so that he could lavish you and love you just like he loves his son. So now he loves, God the Father perfectly loves the son and lavishes him with his love and he does the same thing for you, that he loves you the same way he loves his own son. And now that he has sent him as as your substitute and he has risen him from the dead and he's brought you into the family, he longs constantly and and yearns that you would have intimate fellowship and, and just closeness with himself. How huge is that for us? That's his passion for his people, for his children. How silly when you think about the squabbles of the world and the conflicts we have, how how small are they in light of the fact of what God does for you and how he feels about you. It just makes them so insignificant, doesn't it? The, the, The same love that God the Father has for Christ, he has for me. how unfathomable for the church, right? And because he does, look what he says. He gives more grace. And circle that word more in your Bible. It's it's the Greek word megas. We get our English word right, mega, right? Large, exceeding great. It's what it means. He gives great grace. He gives large grace. He gives more grace. He lavishes just when you think there's no way God could ever give me more grace. I, I, I've run out. It's 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 gotta be depleted. He says, No, no, I have an infinite amount more here. I am I have a tireless amount of grace for you. There's more and more and more. There it does not run out. He gives more grace. But who does he give it to? Does he give it to everybody? It's not what he says. He says, therefore, it says God opposes who? The proud. But where does he lavish his grace? Where does he pour it out? But he gives grace to who? The humble. Who does God pour out his grace and pour out his love and, and lavish with it? It's the humble. Now let's, let's take a step back and think about what we've been talking about, conflicts. And what is the source of conflicts? It's pride, it's us. And when we're proud, what do we do? It says we make ourselves an enemy of God and God says, and I oppose. It's a military term. I stand against the proud. So not only is the proud person saying, I'm on the other team, God is saying, I am resisting you. Okay, but for the humble, I lavish you with grace. I yearn for intimacy. What's the solution then to conflicts? If pride is the issue, the solution is humility. And when we talk about humility, there's a false view of humility in the world. It's oh, look at me, I stink, I'm a loser. It's the best thing about me is I'm a loser. Woe is me, I can't do anything right. Just kill me, (laughs) right, I'm just a dummy. That's humble, that's not humble, that's dumb. (laughs) Humility is just recognizing your need for Christ and acknowledging his sufficiency, that's humility. It's seeing that you, you are empty apart from him but recognizing his sufficiency, that's humility. Right, and think about the proud person, the proud person doesn't need anything. The humble person says, no I need, The proud person says it's about me, it's about my way, it's about getting my own, it's about making me known. The the humble person says it's not about me, it's about him. It's not my will, it's his will. And the the ultimate of humility was seen at at Christ going to the cross, and what does he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, it's, it's not my will, but your will. It's ultimate humility, Philippians 2, Jesus being the glorified son, Eternally worshiped in, in heaven constantly, and he leaves that. He takes on flesh. He takes on ears, and he takes on hands, and he takes on legs, and he takes on hair on his head, and he becomes a man and will forever be a man, even though he's a glorified, perfect man. Right now, at the throne of Jesus, right now, he is sitting there, and he's got hands that have scars in them, and he has a side that has been pierced, and he has feet that have scars, and he will forever have them. That is humility. Not my will, but thine. Right? Just think about, again, go back to the areas of conflict in your life, where, are they, where they're at the most. If, if you and I would just apply a smidge of humility to those situations, when someone says something like this, boom, and you want to go back and, if there would be a little humility in that and you would let a soft answer, how would that diffuse? May not make it go away, but how would it diffuse? And I'm not saying, look, this, we are realists here. And those of you who have been in conflict with spouse or whatever, it is unrealistic for you to say, one of you is not gonna say in the middle of it, honey, let's say the Lord's prayer together. Hold my hand. I, I, that's not gonna happen. Okay? <laughs> if it does, you need to be up here teaching and I'll come be your student because I, I've never seen that. But what can happen is I walk away for five minutes and say, Lord, help me to be gentle, and I go back into that conversation, and instead of yelling, say, I was was wrong, I've been yelling, let's just talk, not leaving our voices, let's talk, or when, when your preference is this, what would it look like to the conflict if you just gave up your preference, even if you're right, even if it's better, how would it diffuse it, how would it eliminate it? just a little bit of humility in the office. When you're, you did a better job and your idea is better, but they choose this one and then you just let it go, right? Is it hard? Mm, Is it hard? That's why God says what? I give how much grace? More. But I, I, I cannot do it. I can't go one more day. I got more grace for you. I got loads of grace for the humble. Loads of it. Proud? Mm-mm. But I got loads of grace, right? You can't even scratch the surface of my grace. I long for you in such a way that I want to help you in your conflict, and I want to walk through it, and I want to give you grace in it when there's humility. That's the solution. And so, th- so where we want to go is, well, how do we cultivate, how can we as people cultivate a humility you can't just go, let's go be humble. All right, let's go be humble. That's not how it works. So how do we cultivate humility in our hearts? I am glad you asked. Because James tells us, and he gives us a bunch of commands. And, and here's where I want to go with these. Look, these are practical commands. They are right in your lap. And I'm not saying go obey these seven things and you'll be humble. Please don't hear me. But I will say this. Take two or three of these today that hit home, and let's start working through those together maybe in your community group you're sharing this, maybe in your ministry team, maybe with the guy you're meeting for coffee on Thursday morning, maybe with your spouse, you're saying, this is where I'm at, this is one that hit me, boom, and you're talking about these things, he gives like 12 commands in the Greek, but I kind of summarize them into seven, but let's just look at them quickly, first one he says this, submit yourself therefore to God, and that makes sense, if you're going to cultivate humility, you got to start listening to somebody, right, instead of being in charge, and he says, now here's who you're going to listen to, You're going to submit. You're going to voluntarily. the Greek word means to place yourself underneath. You're going to voluntarily place yourself under God. Because if he's good and he's longing for you and he wants your best, that is a good place to start, y'all. And and some of you are sitting here having a staring contest with God and you're just, uh, I'm going to outlast him. And it's time for you to blink and stop resisting and say, I'm going to listen to you, God. And I don't know what area that may be, but here's the way I think. You probably do. And you say, I really don't know where I'm resisting God. Then here's, here's what you need to do. You need to get a piece of paper, get a little notebook at your journal, take some time this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, and you go and ask God, God, show me where I am resisting you, and you just wait and open the Bible and just read and think, and I can promise you, guess who will show up? God the Holy Spirit, and he's going to talk. So you listen, and you write down, Right, because he's going to show you. You're going to open yourself up and say, "God, where am I resisting you?" You don't think the God of the universe, who longs for you and yearns for you and desires you, is going to show up and say, "Okay, I'm here. Let's go." You got, you got a pen? You got shorthand because I got a lot to say. Right? You do that. It's part of our P and our specs. It's a pursuit. Right? That's that's what. And if you're like, "I don't," I'm afraid, or "What if I fail?" More grace more grace. There's more grace. It's the first command. What does he say? How else do we cultivate it? He says, resist the devil. Now, I don't know how it happened, but somehow in the church, we got this dumb idea that we just have to be losers the rest of our, we're going to lose. Well, always have to fail. We're going to lose with the bad news bears, never be victorious. We walk in defeat. One day Jesus will come back and it'll be good. But right now we're just lose, 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 always lose, always lose, never have victory that's not what this verse says this verse says resist the devil and he will what flee not that he'll creep out slowly that he will he will turn tail and run like me out of a craft fair i mean he is gone okay okay so what what does that look like then because all, half of us thinking, oh, am going to be a horrible day and I'm going to do it again. He says, no, if you resist the devil, if you stand firm, not in your own strength now, because you are no match for the devil on your own. But if you are in the power of the armor of God, if you have put on the armor of God and you are walking by the spirit, he will flee. It is a promise to claim. Is God lying? No. So how do I resist the devil? Real simply, I, I just look at Jesus and what he did. You replace the lie. With the truth. What does Satan tell Jesus? Bow down and I will give you the kingdoms. Give them to y'all. What does Jesus say? That's a lie. I shall have no other gods before God. Jump off this this building and the angels will catch you. That is a lie. Here's the truth. Do not test the Lord. So when the, the enemy is lying, you will only be happy if you get this. this is what you deserve, that, that person was, they did this to you, you need to do this, take that lie, and replace it with the truth, no, I will only be content when I am loving God with my whole heart, take, and he cannot stand the truth, and he will not just, well, okay, I'll come back later, he will book it, because you're not standing in yourself, pride stands in itself, I can do it, I won't do this, I won't do that, humility, cultivating humility says, I'm gonna stand in the power of someone else, right? You wanna cultivate humility? Where in your life do you need to resist and just stop believing the lie and replace it with the truth, right? It's a way to cultivate humility. Here's my favorite, draw near to God and he will do what? He will draw near to you. In the chaos of conflict and struggle and when there's people upset, I don't know about you, but I just, I feel lost, I don't, I, I feel disoriented. I feel like, where am I going to go? What am I doing? I feel all alone. I feel like, I, th- what direction do you go? When, my, when I was growing up, my dad, I don't know if it was to keep me humble or if it was a form of discipline, forced me to do Civil War reenactments with him. <laughs> okay, so all these old men would be out, you know, carrying their weapons and smiling and laughing. I was the only one that looked authentic because I was the only miserable one. Was, <laughs> right? okay, why am I here, but at at some point in the battle, okay, if you can call it that, there would be this time when everyone would run together, right, there was the the final charge, the glory of these 63-year-old men who wanted to go down for their whatever, and there were these times, you'd charge the field, and it was just chaos, it'd be men all over pretending to hit each other, it was like, really, I mean, but still, but in the midst of that, once in a while, I would find myself like separated from the group, and I'd be like, "Where? how did I get way over here? And the only way, the only way I knew where my team was, was there was this one guy, he didn't have a weapon. I don't know, he had to, didn't have like a machine gun in one arm, or, and he had the flag. And he'd be holding the flag, just waving the flag. And when you were out, separated from the group, if you wanted to know where the group was, what'd you do? You looked for the flag, and you ran For the flag. And I think what James is saying, when you're in the middle of the chaos and the struggle and you don't know where you're going and it feels like you're lost and you're alone, look for the flag and then run to it. And what is the promise? Draw near to him and what? He'll get you an appointment next Friday maybe? The God who yearns for you, the God who longs for you, the God who is jealous over you, will draw near to you immediately and you will be there. The prideful person separates himself because he doesn't have a need. He's all fine, I'm good, I don't need anything. The humble person says, no, I need to get as close to the flag as I can every day. And I don't know what drawing, this is where some of y'all are at. You're in the middle, you've wandered off and the flag's over there and you don't know where you are and you need to turn around and you need to look for the flag today and you need to book it towards the flag. And I don't know what that means for you. It might mean you've been hanging out with this group of folks and they're just taking you on this path. You might need to go back with this group of folks where you were walking with the Lord that are gonna encourage you. It might mean you you need to spend some time reading through the Psalms and just in prayer and and coming back. It might mean singing songs or journaling again. Like whatever it is, when you were close to Jesus, you were doing that. What what, what John says to to the church in Ephesus, do what you did at first. Back when you were close, go back there. Whatever that looks like for you. You want to cultivate humility? Get as close as you can to the Lord Jesus because he was the most humble ever and the more close you get to him, the more you'll be like him. It's going to happen. It's a promise. Draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. Right? What's the next one he says? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. This is a very Old Testament idea where the priest would go into the tabernacle and he'd have to wash his hands to cleanse them it's right after, out of one of the, the ascension psalms, Psalm 24. Who can, who can ascend God's holy hill? Who can enter his tabernacle or his temple? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to any idol. The idea of, here's how I summarize it, is confession. That you regularly, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have some regular time of confession of sin. This is part of how Jesus teaches us to pray. He, the disciples say, teach teaches us to pray like the like the Pharisees teach their disciples and he teaches them, Father, out in heaven, would be thy name. And at the end of the prayer, he says, forgive us our trespasses. It's a regular part of the disciples' prayer where you regularly just kind of get alone and you have a time of confession. Because if you're never thinking about that, then you're never thinking about grace. And if you're never thinking about grace, there's a tendency to be proud. The closer you get to the cross, the more humble you're gonna become. And so there should be regular times. I'm not saying six times a day you need to go and pray, but there should be just a regular time. God, search my heart like the psalmist says. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Just regular times of that. That's why after a sermon, we don't just say, hey, have a good week. Shh. We have a time of worship and reflection so that you can, that you can do that today. It's, it's purposeful. But just a regular time. A regular time of confessing your sins. We'll see this in a couple weeks. To one another, stop pretending that you don't sin. I, this is where I'm at. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Is what he says later, All right? It's, it's, that'll cultivate humility in us. Next thing he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And 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 he's not saying that God is down on laughter. Quite the contrary. The the proverb says that merry heart is like good medicine. But what he's talking about here in context is don't go out into the world and be all, you know, adulterating yourself with the world and then come in and be like, here I am, I'm back, yay. Let's do a little jig. He says, you come like the prodigal son came, right? He who, Who wasted his dad's money and was eating the slop of pigs. And how does he approach his loving father? Father, I have sinned. He's not laughing he said, that's the way you approach it. And the way I summarize it, just kind of in my thoughts was, just treat God as holy. If you're gonna cultivate humility, remember, yes, God is our father. And yes, he loves us. And yes, he longs for us. He is still a holy, holy, holy God. And the angels cover their face and don't even look at him because he's so holy. So just regard him as holy. Because when you see how holy and perfect and awesome he is, I mean, if he walked through here in his glorified body, there would be nobody on their, on, that wasn't on their face. And so just regard this, this mighty, awesome God as holy because it'll cause humility in your heart. It'll cultivate that, right? Next thing he says, he closes out the paragraph and says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And, and what I kind of summarize that is just be patient with the Lord. And where I get that is he says, humble yourself. That's in the, that's in the aorist imperative. It's do it, do it now. But then he says, where, when's the result? He will, future tense, exalt you. W- when, when's he gonna exalt me? Doesn't say. He just promises it will happen. So the idea for me is you've got to wait. How long did it take for Joseph to be exalted? Read this, the book of Genesis. He gets, in, he gets put in prison. He has made a slave. He's sold by his brothers. It's a long time until he becomes second in command in Egypt. How long was it Christ living as a carpenter humble before the exaltation of the resurrection? And even now, 2,000 plus years later, waiting to get his bride? right? But it will come. And he says, look, you humble yourselves now. How much better, y'all, than to get mine now, get it on what I want now, than rather Jesus Christ exalt you later. How much better will that be? Be patient with the Lord. And then finally, last two verses, just going to read them and kind of comment. He says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges brother speaks evil against the law judges the law but if you judge the law you're not a doer of the law but a judge there's only one lawgiver and judge he was able to save and destroy who are you to judge your neighbor and we've talked enough about the tongue but here's the idea there remember what we said about the tongue do it how many times has he talked about who are you to be you're not the judge it's not to say we don't keep each other accountable that's not the context it's stop talking stop putting them down stop stop talking trash about them who are you Here's the positive side. That person that you know you have the conflict with the most, your brother, your roommate, your boss, here's your homework for this week. Every day, you have to say three encouraging things to them and not one negative. negative, three. That means if you're Monday through Friday, that's 15. That means if they live in the same house, that's 21. That's good math for y'all, <laughs> right? Not one negative. Now, if they go and shoot the dog, you can say something, all right? You three encouraging things. That's that's because what happens? If you're thinking about how can I encourage that person, what are you not thinking about? Me. Right? How can I encourage my teenage son who doesn't make his bed? Who doesn't take the trash out unless I say six times? How can I how can I encourage my boss who is lazy? My roommate who doesn't do his chores and keep the kids. How can I encourage them this week? That's your homework, right? See how that will diffuse maybe the conflict a little bit. Can you make it go away? No, you cannot. Not this side of heaven. But you can act godly in it. If the source of it is pride, the solution is humility. And here, look, and you're like, oh, I didn't get any of those then your homework is read through these commands again this week. Say, okay, Lord, what does this look like for me? I, look, this is where we're at. How we handle conflict, y'all, is one of the greatest ways in which the world will see that we are Christ's followers. It, it just is. It's not going to be for me because you go to church on Sunday morning, I can tell you that. No one cares. It's not going to be for that. It's not going to be because you read your Bible at lunch. That's great the Muslim reads his Quran at lunch, right? How are they going to know you're his disciple? By your love. And when you handle conflict in a godly way, there it is. So let that be us. Let's cultivate a church of humility, right? Let's cultivate a people of humility. Let's start by submitting ourselves to God, right? Let's stand and let's worship, and let's reflect just where God asks us. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us. You long for us. You yearn for us. And we are so undeserving. But I am so grateful that you have done so, and you have opened our eyes. And I just pray for our church. We are not perfect. We are in need of a Savior constantly. And so as we are, that we would just, in humility, run back to you. Lord, where there is conflict, bring peace and let us at least handle in a way that reflects our Savior and the way he handled it. We love him and we worship him this morning in holiness and in truth. Uh just be exalted and glorified as we come this morning, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name.